Hello and welcome to this voice tour of St. Mary's. This tour is led by the amazing Robert Milton and we hope you enjoy this very much. Welcome to St. Mary's Church. Uh, The church itself was closed for regular worship in 1987 and due to its listing being a Grade 1 listed church, it was handed to the Church's Conservation Trust to today preserve it and conserve it for future generations. The first thing that you will see on your approach to the, the church itself is the absolute dominance of its tower and spire. The tower dates from the Norman period, uh, with the spire added during the 15th century. And from top to toe, we have the best part of 211 feet. Um, the other thing that you will spot on your approach is a plaque to our famous tightrope walker, Robert Cadman, a gentleman from the 1700s who earned his extra pennies through performing tricks on tightropes and was actually requested to, to attend St. Mary's to repair the weather vane, then requested permission to tie a rope to the bell frame and took it across the back of the church past where the parade stands today which obviously wasn't there during the period and right the way across to where the old football ground used to stand at the gay meadow at ground level he would walk up the tightrope reciting poetry and shooting pistols reach the top and then tie a board to his chest that had a groove in it and zip wire down the line blowing a trumpet tragically on this occasion in 1739 The frost fair was in place, very, very severe winter. The River Severn was frosted over. The line, which had been wet, snapped, and he plummeted to his death, more or less just beyond where the present-day parade stands. His wife heard the screams and the cries and instantly turned her rapport into widow and orphans to support and retired a wealthy lady to Leicestershire. On entering the church, uh, the first part that you come into is the base of the bell tower. Now, the bell tower itself holds 10 bells, which are rung the best part of 80 feet above us. Um, In the base of the tower, we have a number of Saxon headstones that were discovered not only in the churchyard during its uh, renovation, shall we say, but also a number of possible very, very early headstones um, with one potentially set outside or acquired by local butchers. And you can actually see the curvature on the top of it where the knife has actually been um, sharpened. In both corners, facing towards the nave or the main body of the church, you will see a series of wires. Originally, the clock was wound on your left, which took 175 turns, which kept the clock ticking for three days. And on its right-hand side is where you altered the hands. Fortunately, today we have an auto winder that keeps the clock going, but rather, unfortunately, um, the auto winder is, um, shall we say, not functioning quite as it should. So the clock has stopped currently. Looking from the bell tower into the church, the first sight that you will see now are the magnificent Hopkins doors. Um, Very, very special, very ornate woodwork. And viewing through that, you will see the magnificent Jesse window. This is a window that dates from 1345. It's one of the largest Jesse's in the country. Um, But we'll deal with that as we move around the church. 
as we move through the, the Hopkins doors, we move into the nave. Um, now, this part of the church actually dates from 1170. The first phase of building that was undertaken by the Normans was to replace the center of the church, which is the choir with the two transepts, the north and the south transepts, with work starting round about 1150 and continuing for some 20 years. This was attached to a Saxon minster, which was actually the width of the nave and the length of it, and its origins were most likely around about the late 9th century. We know that various deans were living in a Saxon royal court during the 10th century, and in the year 965 the church was acquired by the Saxon king Edgar to become a royal peculiar. And it remained a royal peculiar until Victoria signed it back to the diocese in 1856. Within the nave, you'll see some substantial columns supporting the upper stories of the church. And interestingly, what you will see in the capitals, which are the top of the columns, is how basic they are on your right-hand side. But as you move around them back towards the bell tower and then on to the left, they become more ornate. This is a clear indication of the period in which they were they were carved. And interestingly, it also shows two, two figures um, on the left-hand side, one is Robert of Shrewsbury, who was a bishop, and the other is potentially one of the kings, but we're unable to identify that gentleman at the moment. Again, looking through the nave itself, you will see our 15th century font. Originally, that would have been in the north transept, along with a, a further door, and you would have come from the dark to be christened, and then you would have been taken to the light, meaning that you would have gone out through the south door. So it's been, unfortunately, it was moved at a latter part of the 19th century to its current location when the north transept was remodelled. Coming through the church, we head towards the east window. Now, the east window is a magnificent Jesse. Jesse himself was the father of David, and what this actually shows is a royal lineage through the kings of the old gospel up to the Holy Family. But the wonderful thing about this particular window, it actually shows the benefactors at the base of it. Now, the benefactors were an incredible couple when we stop and look back through history. John Charlton was... A young gentleman with his father at one of the local barons in the county who became squire to Edward II to curry favour and influence a future king. On succession, John becomes Sheriff of Shrewsbury, a man of immense landholding, a diplomat of some great renown and governor of Ireland for a period. But when we move across the window to the left, there's a lady in red and gold kneeling, praying. And that's Hawise the Bold, the last true princess of Powys. And she inherits on her father's death a percentage of North Wales and Powys Castle. However, her father's brother objects to her inheriting and actually besieges and tries to acquire her holdings back. She pleads with the king. She's actually represented by John in court, and John wins the case. However, Hawise ends up marrying John, so she actually loses the castle and the land in turn because John becomes the possessor. However, they have an absolute magnificent building built in Shrewsbury itself, and the window is believed to have been originated in St. Austin's Friars. However... Possibly during the Reformation, the glass was sold to old St. Chad's, 
Old St. Chad's tragically collapses, but the east window in St. Mary's at that time is plain glass, and William Rowlands, the curate, grabs the glass instantly and shoehorns it into the window that you see today. The outer panels showing the saints in white and blue were added at the time of its installation in 1791. To the left of the window, you'll see the St. Bernard panels. Now, St. Bernard panels are incredibly significant, both here and to our European neighbours, particularly in France and Germany. The church holds the largest single collection of panels in the world. And again, they were acquired by William in 1825 for the princely sum of 400 guineas, which by today's value is about £40,000. So this was a man of immense wealth and determination to acquire them. But it actually shows all the various miracles that St. Bernard is said to have performed and were actually transported across to Paris in 1990 for exhibition and over to Cologne in 2007 for exhibition there as well. We've now moved into the Trinity Chapel, which was built in 1360, replacing a very early Norman side chapel belonging to the Laybourne family. But the wonderful thing about Trinity is that we have in its east window some absolutely outstanding Victorian and Art Renaissance style glass. But equally, it tells a story in turn. The Victorian glass actually was a competition between William Rowlands and his brother to design either side. But tragically, when William died, the check stopped. And what you will see towards the base of the windows are various fragments of glass and friezes. At this point, the check stops, and Bettman Evans, who are the major glass manufacturers in the town, are no longer willing to fund the finish of the glass. So we have this kaleidoscope effect in the base of the window. But if you look very, very closely at the small pieces, you'll see some remarkable fragments of medieval glass in turn. As we turn slightly to the south, um, you'll again see very, very fine 16th century glass. But in particular, we have one image of Jesus in the arms of a gentleman in a green and purple robe. Originally, this was Jesus being received by God. However, William would not have God depicted in any form of imagery. So Bettner and Evans were required to put a turban upon his head and turn him into Joseph of Arimathea. The Trinity Chapel itself has an intrigue in history originally developed for the Shrewsbury Drapers Company, um, who were charged with paying for a chantry priest to say prayers on behalf of the king and his family and dignitaries of the town. It also became, during the 17th century, a classroom as part of the first grammar school that the town had and remained a classroom for 150 years before they moved down to the, the library before moving on in turn up into Kingsland. Yet the wonderful thing about the chapel is its First World War memorial, which has inscribed on it one particular name of Catherine Harley, an absolutely fascinating lady, a leading suffragist of her day, and a very dominant character who, on the outbreak of war, desperately wanted to be involved in nursing. However, her brother, a gentleman called Major General Sir John French objected in turn, and she had to do this discreetly by going up to Scotland and then being seconded across onto the continent. 
but she had actually ended up in Serbia nursing on the front there and tragically was killed by shrapnel while taking tea with a daughter. However, she was so respected by all sides of the conflict in that particular part of the world that a truce was declared on the day of a funeral and which was attended by a great many, many people. However, the interesting thing behind the family in turn is her sister was the leading IRA supporter and is actually buried in the IRA cemetery in Dublin. So, shall we say, Christmas dinners must have been quite entertaining with the conversation across the tables. Tucked away to the left-hand side of the Trinity Chapel, we have a memorial to Sir John Laybourne. Now, this gentleman's quite interesting, actually, because it depicts him in armour with his ankles crossed. And there is a belief that crossed ankles indicated that that particular gentleman went on crusade. Um, This is a bit of an embellishment on stories. Um, It is our understanding that that's not quite so. But the wonderful thing about his memorial, where his children would have been depicted below, they've all been destroyed, and that would have occurred during the Reformation. But originally, Trinity Chapel, a small section of it, was a private chapel for the Laybourne family. And if you look back towards the nave, you can actually see where the pitch line ran across the west wall of the chapel, which gives you a good indication of the size of the chapel, which would have been quite small, but equally how the pitch line actually dissects a round window immediately above it. Again, it's a reveal that's telling us a story of the age of the building and the phases of development, which is absolutely confusing at the best of times to everybody and anybody who comes into the church, but it really does create a puzzle and you can spend some wonderful hours here trying to work it out. If we move across to the north side of the church, we actually enter the St. Catherine Chapel. Within the chapel itself, we have an absolute wealth of information and memorials. We have a memorial to Admiral Bembo. He commemorated in Jamaica Inn and the like, the Nelson of his day in saving the West Indies for the Empire. But intriguingly, a gentleman who was involved in uh, other activities in the Mediterranean against the Moorish pirates, and a man of local origin, believed to be, uh, lived out at Coton Hill, where the key to his house was nailed to a wooden post, um, where a certain garage used to be. Uh, and unfortunately, when the garage relocated, the key disappeared for a period before being returned. If we move to the left of the Bembo Memorial, we see an absolute outstanding piece of stained glass that originated in the Netherlands. The church holds what is considered to be one of the top 10 stained glass collections in the country. But this particular glass is absolutely fascinating. You'll see images of cities beyond the image itself of Christ being crucified. And the cities and the landscape is what the glass manufacturer is actually viewing through his open door or a window. And that's what makes it so intriguing. It reflects the period of its creation. But in the centre panel below, it actually shows Jesus being betrayed by Judas. And that is a very, very seldom seen depiction in any church. Remarkable piece. But St. Catherine's itself, again, would have been a private chapel. And it actually originally would have been about another three feet lower than the current floor level. With the access can be clearly seen on the outside of the church on the north wall. 
Again, it has some of the earliest tiles that were brought into the church in 1841, and they are extremely ornate, and they do actually mirror various bits and pieces of tiling in Westminster Abbeys, which shows how significant and how important the design was to the church. Immediately below the stained glass, we have an absolutely wonderful alabaster tomb to Sir John Stafford, again a local nobleman who was Sheriff of Shrewsbury for a period. But if you look very, very closely at the tomb itself, you'll see some outstanding graffiti, but intriguingly, some small holes which are half round. This is believed to have been from pistol shots where it was actually used as a target for shooting practice. No respect, perhaps. If we move back into the nave and look upwards, you will see an absolute magnificent carved ceiling. The ceiling dates from the 1400s. This is a phase of building where not only the ceiling is added to the church, but the upper story windows to give the building more light, plus the spire on top of the tower. Tragically, during heavy gales in 1891, the top 30 feet of the spire topple backwards and come straight the way through the roof, destroying the four centre panels and a lot of damage to the interior of the building. But the collection that was held within the town was absolutely amazing and the roof was replaced, knitted back together by fantastic carpenters of the day you will see a discoloration across the roof itself but that's most likely caused from the lime mortar laying on the oak which becomes an instant discolorer and it bleaches the timber outwards but the wonderful story about the roof coming in itself was that the vicar of the day spread his arms wide because a statue to darwin's being erected in the town and is reputed to have said see this is what happens when you cease to believe Moving around the nave itself again, looking back towards the bell tower, if you look very closely, you'll see a window which takes you through to where the current bells are rung from, and above them two enclosed lancet windows, which is where the bells would have originally been hung. But intriguingly, if you look towards the right-hand corner, you will see a faint pitch line of a very, very earlier roof, possibly even the Saxon roof, again, it would be lovely to be able to confirm this, but at the, this time we're, we're just unable to do so. So we have to add the dreaded line of we believe it could be, I'm afraid. But again, looking around the nave itself into the various aisles, you will see some absolute splendid stained glass that originates both in Germany and in current France, Belgium and the Netherlands. Remaining in the nave, if we move into the south aisle the window that is just to the left-hand side of an arched doorway shows two intriguing gentlemen, um, believed to be the wise men, coming to worship the birth of Jesus. Um, intriguingly, what it does show is one gentleman is standing up with a crown in his hand and the other gentleman is kneeling in a red robe. These are actually the last two emperors of Constantinople. The gentleman standing up is Emmanuel I, and the gentleman kneeling down is his son John, and they were known as the wise men of the East during their reigns due to the pressure that they put on other nations to resist the hordes of the, shall we say, the, the Arab continent, along with finding income for arms and soldiers to protect Constantinople. 
tragically, the bottom half of the glass was smashed um, during a phase of vandalism that the church underwent. If we move out into the churchyard, the churchyard you see today is mostly covered in grass, but beneath the grass is a multitude of tombstones uh, to those who were interned within the church. The churchyard itself extended more significantly across an area than what you see today, including uh, St. Mary's Place, the road, and indeed originally where the parade stands, that was churchyard in turn. If we stand with our back to the south porch door, which is an extremely ornately carved northern construction, you'll see above it uh, what we term the monuments room, which is a small office. The weight of adding that onto the porch itself, you will see that the stonework is slightly bowed outwards and that unfortunately now has to be propped up slightly um, just to keep it in place to stop it spreading any further. But if you wander around the south side of the church and look very closely at the walls, at shoulder height you'll see a number of vertical scratch marks which looks as though a cat has been sharpening his claws. We believe during the medieval period the men of the town were summoned to do their archery practice, shooting at targets from where the parade stands today, at targets across once again over the river towards where the football ground used to be in the old gay meadow. The men would be told initially when turning up with some very ropey arrows to sharpen the heads and they'd head straight towards the side of the church to utilise the sandstone and that's where we believe these marks have actually come from. If we move further around the south side of the church towards the exterior of the Trinity Chapel, unfortunately you will see one of our pinnacles that lies in the churchyard. Unfortunately, uh, strong gales um, having destroyed the top of the spire at one period um, we're also responsible for toppling one of the pinnacles down into the churchyard the tragedy behind that is that as a building now we need a quarter of a million pounds to undertake serious and urgent repairs to the building otherwise there is a real risk that we may have to close the doors under health and safety not only have we got to repair some five pinnacles on top of the Trinity Chapel, which were in turn a Victorian embellishment, we have to carry out repairs to damage stained glass and also other bits and pieces around the building just to keep it safe, but more importantly, to ensure that it stands for another 1,200 years for future generations to enjoy and to view. And this concludes our tour of St Mary's. I think Robert was fantastic with that and I learned so much and I hope you did too. Please make sure you visit originalshrewsbury.co.uk to find out more voice tours that have been laid out across the town. We hope you enjoyed this. Thank you very much.